I'd like to welcome you to our May 24th worship service. And we are going through a series on the seven letters of Revelation. This morning we are so uh, blessed to have uh, a guest minister come and preach the sermon on the third church. His name is Doug Benet. Doug and his wife Abby served with Global Missions Network, which is uh, serving throughout the world, those in the uh, third world who are building churches and making disciples. And so Doug and Abby are usually at this time in, uh, in Zambia and in places in Africa training pastors to reach people for Christ. And we are so fortunate because of the pandemic to have he and Abby in the area this, uh, this month. And so we've asked Doug to come and preach uh, for your edification, the message of the third letter. And I know that you'll look forward to that. Good morning. It's fantastic to be with you today. Um, my wife Abby and I love Center Church. We don't love that we're not actually with you in person, but it's great to be together over the internet. I wanted to give you a quick update before we pray and get to God's Word and let you know that uh, Abby and I were due to have arrived in Zambia on May 14th. Uh, Zambia is locked down. Their borders are closed. Uh, they allow some visitors, but if you arrive, they quarantine you for 14 days at your expense, and uh, the difficulty of even getting there is extreme, and so we had to postpone our trip. Our hope, rather than having two eight-week trips this year, is that by July or possibly August, we'll be able to go and have one long trip. Uh, in the meanwhile, we ask that you pray for Percy Muleba and his family. Um, of course, you guys contributed mightily to his vehicle fund. That's been put on hold because no shipments are allowed into the country from other countries. Uh, it'll be this fall before we can do that again. Um, uh, but uh, Percy and his family are fine. But Percy, as you may remember, is a two-time tuberculosis survivor. And so he is at the extreme end of the vulnerable population. He's being very careful. So don't forget to pray for them. And please pray for us that the Lord in his wisdom would give us a chance to go to Zambia. Our students are extremely eager, uh, and so are we. All right, let's take just a minute now and pray, and then turn our attention to the Word of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present with us. Our prayer is, is that you'll teach us in such a way that we will be transformed from the inside out. Uh, that our identity in Christ will take such deep root that we will become more and more the men and women you've created us to be. Uh, that our guilt and our shame and our fear, the things that sort of derail us in our walk with you, will be upended and rooted out and will be free in our intimacy with you. Uh, and that, that we'll live our lives uh, uh, sharing the gospel and honoring you. Uh, so would you do that? And we trust you, Jesus, who, because you promised and said you'd send the Spirit to teach us and to lead us into all truth. We pray in your name and God's people said together, amen. amen. Well, when Robert invited me to preach, um, he told me that you were doing a series on the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, which was exciting to me uh, for two reasons. Number one, I already have sermons for the letters to the seven churches of Revelation, so I could start from a solid base. Uh, number two, 
uh, because I think they're very pertinent and they're very relevant to the church in the United States today. Um, I'll be preaching from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the church in Pergamum. Uh, and I want to read that now, and I want you to listen carefully to the word of God. And this is Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king of Moab, to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ended up eating food, sacrificed to idols, excuse me, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This is the third of the letters to the churches and a trade route in Asia Minor in the first century. It's the end of the first century. I know Robert's probably laid this out to you in the last few weeks. Uh, but I thought it'd be important to begin with the reality that Jesus knows. Jesus perceives. Jesus gets it. And that's how he begins this letter like the other letters. I know. And in this case, he says, I know where you live. And I know that where you live puts you in incredibly tough circumstances. He says, I know where you live. It is where Satan has his throne. The town, the city was Pergamum. It was a jewel in Asia Minor. Rome loved Pergamum because Pergamum loved Rome. It was a very, very large city. It had the second largest library in the ancient world, 200,000 volumes, second only to the library in Alexandria. It had an outdoor amphitheater with 10,000 seats, renowned for its magnificent acoustics. But it was also the home of Satan's throne. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, scholars have talked about this a lot, and I think there's three possibilities, and probably all three figure into this description. First, in Pergamon was something called the Pergamon Altar to Zeus. It was huge, made of marble with a 123-foot relief carving of the battles of the gods at its base. It was 100 feet by 100 feet by 40 feet tall. It had 40-foot wide and 20-foot high stairs that brought the priests up to the place of sacrifice uh, 
and sometimes human sacrifice. You'll be interested to note that a German archaeologist at the end of the 1900s, excuse me, the 1800s, uncovered Pergamon's al the Pergamon altar. And it was transported in pieces to Germany. It was then reconstructed and put back together. And tellingly, Adolf Hitler's chief architect, Albert Speer, used the Pergamon altar as his model for Hitler's speaking platform at the Nuremberg parade grounds where he held the Nazi rallies by torchlight. How fitting that Satan's throne began, became the seat of Satan's man, Adolf Hitler. He would descend those long stairs and then step out onto the rostrum to the cheers of the Nazi faithful. One can only imagine that, and one can only imagine the worship in Pergamum at the altar Pergamon. But that wasn't all that was in Pergamum. There was also the healing center of Asclepius, the god of healing. You know, our modern medical image is a staff with a serpent around it. It's derived from this. Now this was an interesting healing center because the healing center had a sign over it that said, none may enter who are near death. In other words, they didn't want their reputation marred by people dying during treatment. But if you were ill, but not near death, you could come in. When you got in, you were given hallucinogenic drugs, you were placed in a bed which had high sides, and you were covered with live, non-poisonous snakes. During your hallucinogenic stupor, you were told to pay attention because the snake god would come to you and tell you what your treatment should be. After that was told and you woke up, you told the priest, the priest administered the treatment. Satan, the snake god, was at the heart of these early healing services, if you want to call them that. And then there was a third thing about Pergamum. It was the enthusiastic center of the emperor cult. As early as Augustus, some 100 years before, Pergamum had proclaimed that the emperor was a god. And the emperor cult was uh, worshipped. <coughs> the people gathered at Trajan's temple, which had begun to be built in the 90s by Trajan and was finished by Hadrian. They loved the emperor. They worshipped him as god. And it was not uncommon for people as citizens to be required to give sacrifice to the emperor at that time. So those three things, the Pergamon altar, the healing center of Asclepius, and the emperor cult all gave rise to Pergamon to be known by Jesus as the place where Satan dwells. Here's the message, just from that opening statement. Jesus knows our tough circumstances. He knows where we live. He understands our situation. He is present with us. He recognizes our challenges. One of the great dangers in the Christian life is to allow the reality of our circumstances to induce shame in us. Maybe we've lost a job. Maybe we're ill and we didn't used to be. 
Uh, maybe our family has fallen apart. Maybe we're under intense pressure at work. Who knows what the situation is? Sometimes we get the sense that we are separated from God, that we feel this sense of shame, that if we were better Christians, if we were walking more intimately with Christ, maybe our circumstances wouldn't be so tough. But that's not the message of Scripture, and it's not the message here. The message here is, I know your circumstances, and I know they're tough, and I am with you. I know. I'm present. I get it. Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, puts it like this. The very nature of the world is such that at times it takes near Herculean effort to maintain the conviction that Jesus is real, that God is truly loving, and that we are at war with evil. Yet we are invited to risk all we have on a God who would rather die than let anything come between us. Jesus says, I know where you live. Here's the second thing. According to this letter, it tells us that Jesus' followers always face two main threats to their faith. Now the first is obvious, uh, that is the external pressure of persecution. Jesus mentions Bishop Antipas, who had been martyred according to church tradition, probably AD 94, maybe five years before this letter was written. He was burned alive on the Pergamon altar because he refused to pour a libation to Caesar and proclaim that Caesar, not Jesus, is sovereign, is Lord. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is central to our faith. The state isn't Lord. People aren't Lord. We're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. It cost Antipas his life. The way he died is described and I've made a decision not to tell you about it. Uh, let's just say this. It was as gruesome and as unpleasant as you can imagine. And Antipas was faithful. And the church refused to recant, even in the wake of his death. Jesus praises the Pergamum Christians for this. He says, you refuse to worship Caesar as God. You are to be commended. I wonder if you realize how much pleasure it gives Jesus when you refuse to bow down to other gods. He takes delight in us. And he took delight in the Christian Pergamum. Did you know that today, and I, I read this on Open Door's website, it's a, a Christian ministry that keeps track of martyrdom worldwide, that one in nine Christians worldwide, that's 260 million Christians right now, experience high level of persecution in their lives. The threat of death, the destruction of their churches, the threat of arrest. The absolute state, which is what the Christians in Pergamum were facing, is the greatest threat. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, and the absolute state says, no, we are your God. China comes to mind. But also, the absolute cultural religion. India comes to mind, Pakistan. According to Open Doors, nearly six out of seven of those under intense persecution live in Muslim-dominated lands. 
It is just a fact. Now some historians estimate that up to 400,000 Christians a year are being martyred as we speak. That can't be clearly documented. Open Door says what can be documented is that in the last 12 months, about 3,000 Christians have been killed for being Christian. Often the state puts them to death for other reasons and they can't be documented as faith deaths or martyrdoms. Did you know that 9,500 churches and Christian buildings have been destroyed in the last 12 months worldwide? that right now there's about 3,700 believers being detained or under arrest with no charges. And of course, this doesn't include the gulags in China or the gross, unbelievable things that are happening in places like uh, Sub-Saharan Africa uh, or Northern Asia. Brothers and sisters, persecution is real. Now there are times <clears throat> when this kind of external pressure backfires on Satan, and it ends up spreading the gospel. It's as if the Christians, because of the pressure, are scattered like the wind, like seed, and end up sharing the gospel wider than they would have. The great early church father Tertullian put it this way, the blood of martyrs is a kind of seed. But it doesn't always have that effect. Sometimes it just wipes out Christians in an area external pressure. But there's a second threat to the church. And it's the threat that is most dangerous, I think, to us who are Christians in the United States. And that's the threat of internal seduction, internal collapse. It's a threat of being broken or destroyed from the inside out, not the outside in. It's referred to in this letter when Jesus says, you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Well, who was Balaam? Balaam was a pagan prophet who taught the king of Moab, Balak, that the best way to destroy Israel <clears throat> was not through witchcraft, but rather through the seduction possible through the beautiful Moabite women. He taught the king to send the women among the Israelite men to sexually seduce them, and then having done so to invite them to join them in worship. And the Israelite men did. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 25, verses one through three. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and they bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baals of Peor, the gods, and the Lord's anger burned against them. In Pergamum, some of the Christians had begun engaging in sexual immorality. And that sexual immorality had led to idolatry. One of the characteristics of the first century Roman world uh, were what we would describe today as pagan feasts, uh, cultural festivals in which the gods were invoked, libations were poured, in essence worship was done, and in the wake of that worship, um, sexual debauchery was part of the, the equation. 
It was part of the business fabric, if you will, of the first century. It was part of the cultural fabric. Some in Pergamum, holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who are mentioned, had basically said, look, we have to go along to get along at some level. And maybe the fear of Antipas' martyrdom was at the back of this. Who knows? Maybe the love of money was. But they had begun to participate in sexual license, and they had also begun to participate in the worship of other gods at these public feasts. Now we know from Scripture that this isn't an option for us as we follow Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, and interestingly, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. The word of God connects greed with sexual immorality. It also connects idolatry with sexual immorality. Why? Because we were created good as sexual beings. Our sexuality is inherently a gift from God that Satan loves twisting and destroying. Jesus, in essence, is warning the Pergamums. You have accommodated to culture, and it cannot stand. You notice the image of the double-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Then he's going to use the sword. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, Christians, you have forgotten that this is a war. There is a battle. It's real. And your souls and the souls of others are at stake. The internal threat of seduction, the external threat of persecution. It was the latter that was causing Pergamum to stumble. And, I stumble, and I'll tell you, it's what's causing the American church to stumble. Now there's two basic expressions that happen when this whole issue of accommodating our Christian faith to the culture we live in happens. The first is immorality, which we've talked about. That's when spiritually anemic Christians commit immorality and end up being idolatrous. In Pergamum, it was a minority of the church that was trying to blend their Christian faith with the immorality of the surrounding culture. Most scholars think it was for financial reasons. In other words, they had to keep doing business with these people or for cultural acceptance. They didn't like sticking out like a sore thumb in a culture where sexual debauchery was common. The same thing happens here. I can remember when I worked for AT&T, every time we had a sales event where we would, like I can remember one in particular, we got on a bus, our office did, and we went to Atlanta for a national AT&T sales event. On the bus, a keg of beer. By the time we were an hour down the road, most of the people on the bus were drunk. There was incredible pressure to conform to this sort of business as pleasure model. People slept around with each other when they were on these events. There was a lot that went on. Um, I often thought the events were planned simply for those opportunities because they were never significant for the business world. It didn't do us any real good the talks were fine, but it was the partying that went on and the subtle pressure to conform, to approve, to participate. 
I can remember specifically a Christian named Fred, who was older than I was, I was in my mid-twenties at the time, noticed that one of the young women who worked in our office had gotten drunk and was hitting on me. And as we got off the bus, Fred quietly spoke to me and he said, watch it, Doug, be careful. And I needed that warning because the culture at the time of my office in AT&T was promoting and encouraging that sort of living. The pressure's real, and it's often tied to business, it's often tied to finance. And sometimes it's just tied to the fact that we just want to be comfortable. We want to get along culturally. The problem is, is that Jesus and the apostles, and the Old Testament for that matter, are very clear about the risks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, notice the link again, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, there we go again, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were that, but you are no longer that. Some in Pergamon had lost their way. They had returned to what they once were. We have to be reminded all the time that Christianity isn't just about faith, but it also is about holiness. It's not just about what we believe, but how we live. It's about being transformed by intimacy with Christ. It's about the real Jesus, risen, sending his spirit to change our lives. That reality had been lost on some in Pergamum. We are taught over and over in scripture to put off our old self, to live a new way of life, to allow the Holy Spirit to change us from deep within so that the way we live reflects a new identity, a new character because of the influence of Jesus. Now that was the minority in Pergamum. But I think the more telling was the second thing, not immorality, but rather indifference, a nonchalance toward the immorality. And the indifference was the majority position. What Jesus is saying to Pergamum is, you have some among you who are living this way, and you aren't doing anything about it. You have accepted the reality that some among you will live their Christian lives in a debauched way. In other words, Pergamum had a majority of Christians who had adopted a live and let live attitude. Brothers and sisters, the American church has been plagued with this for the last 50 or 60 years. It is also a spiritual anemia and it's a spiritual anemia that doesn't care about the suffering, the immorality, the debauchery, the stumbling of our brothers and sisters. In essence, the Christians in Pergamum had split truth from love, and their love had become mere sentimentality, not real Christian love. Timothy Keller says this, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. 
Truth without love, on the other hand, is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. The Pergamon Christians had chosen love without truth. And it had slid, as it always does, into sentimentality, where we close our eyes to the reality of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we simply live and let live. You can imagine they're thinking, listen, you gotta live in the real world. Hey, it's only sex. Uh, sex is a private thing. It's really none of our business. We don't want to deal with this stuff. It's going to tear our church apart. Come on now. I've heard it all. Every excuse. I met with someone within the last two weeks, not from your church, who had been engaged in an adulterous relationship. And it was interesting to listen to the excuses for it still not having come to grips with the fact that walking with Christ and being in an adulterous relationship was not something that could be held on to. They had reasons, they had excuses, they had blame. Their parents, the wife, and on and on it went. It was sad. Truth and love must be held together. You know, I don't know if you've thought about it, but Traditionally, Christians embrace something called the seven deadly sins. Here they are, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, wrath, and sloth. Sloth. You know what sloth is? Sloth isn't laziness. Sloth, as a seven, one of the seven deadly sins is, I don't care so much that it has become the fact that I don't care that I don't care. And the Christians in Pergamum, this is it. I don't care. I don't care that my brothers and sisters aren't walking in the way of Christ. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not my responsibility. It's a private situation. It's none of my business. And the list goes on. they got to do business. It's Monday through Friday. On the weekends we worship. During the week we do business. Whatever it was, they had embraced indifference. What about our culture? I would like to suggest, not a new idea, that the supreme God of this age right now in the United States is the God of tolerance, the God of diversity. In the old days when you said tolerance, what people thought of the word was this, we accept a person's right to hold different points of view. In the old days, tolerance was understood to be this, I accept someone else's right to hold a different point of view, but I don't believe that all ideas have equal merit. The fact that someone holds a different point of view is their right, but it might not be a good point of view, and maybe I need to be corrected as well. Today, that's not what we mean when we hear the word tolerance. What we need here today is, by tolerance, is all ideas have the same merit, so don't impose your morality on me. You have no right to tell me that I could be incorrect in my thinking because all thinking is right. It's a very subjective worldview. It's a, it's a, a worldview in which the ultimate sin is bigotry, that is, not embracing as equally valid all points of view. The ultimate value is diversity. And the final authority is me. In other words, I am God. I, not God am God. Kind of goes in the face of the old Christian saying, God is God and I am not. 
In the new age of tolerance, I am God and you are not. I decide. It's really interesting to see how far we've come. In 1987, some of you will remember Ted Koppel of ABC News. Um, long retired now. He may have passed away. I don't know. Ted Koppel, of all people, who would describe himself at the time, I think, as a relatively liberal political animal. This is what he said when he spoke at Duke University for the commencement address in 1987. What Moses brought down for Mount Sinai were not the Ten Suggestions. They are commandments. But in the place of truth, we have discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we have substituted moral ambiguity. Shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex with whomever you wish, but use a condom. But the answer is no. Not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no, because it's wrong. Can you imagine what would happen if someone spoke like that to Duke University today at a commencement address? If they had a reputation for speaking like that, they would never be invited to a commencement address. Because tolerance is the new God of this age, and it has infected the church, big time. I can't tell you how many times I've had Christians say to me, Pastor, look, we just aren't supposed to judge. That's what Jesus said. Can't we just leave this alone? I mean, who are we to say? Now, Jesus... <laughs> according to this letter to the church in Pergamum, doesn't like moral indifference. He is not willing to share the stage with the God of tolerance. He says, I have a solution to your problem. And it's a very interesting solution. He says, the solution is twofold. First, he says, if you're gonna deal with the immorality and indifference in your church, you're going to have to begin listening to what the Spirit is saying. You've got to begin listening to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, what he is saying in essence is, is that God's word must become our bedrock. Jesus had said the Spirit would lead us into all truth. There is absolutely no doubt that Jesus' words are to be the bedrock of our life. We're to hear scripture, read scripture, study scripture, memorize scripture, meditate and sing scripture, and then more importantly than all of that, apply scripture to every aspect of our lives. How we live, how we think, how we do business, how we raise our families, the way we express ourselves sexually, the way we express ourselves verbally, the way we um, approach life at every dimension. Christianity is meant to touch everything. Jesus says, first of all, you have got to listen to the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said these words, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, and it will come. The streams rose, and they will rise. And the winds blew and beat against that house, Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Listen to the Spirit 
not to the spirit of this age, but the spirit of Jesus. Listen, not to your spirit, but to the spirit of Jesus. Listen, not to the evil spirit, but to the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, Jesus says, repent. You know, Jesus began his ministry with that word. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, because you are not in charge, but God is. Repent, because God's rule through me is about to be realized through my life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Jesus says, repent, change your way of thinking. The Greek word metanoia means rethink everything and then change the direction of your life because of it. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is, don't you recognize that immorality and indifference are two sides of the same coin and neither can be part of the Christian life. It is basically, when you think about it, the failure to love God and the failure to love our neighbors as ourselves that was happening in Pergamum. Sex had been elevated above Jesus and indifference had been elevated and sentimentality had been elevated above true love for one another. First Peter chapter one says, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Truth and love always go together. Always go together in Christ. Now I can't stop without saying a word about the consequences of rejecting Jesus' advice. Jesus says there will be consequences. He says if you do not listen to the Spirit, if you do not repent, I will come and deal with it through the sword in my mouth. The sharp, double-edged sword of truth and judgment. The Bible teaches us that the Word of God, the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, cuts deep within us. In the, the book of Hebrews, it talks about this. The truth of God's word cuts deep within us. It divides us at the deepest recesses of who we are and touches our soul and forces us to confront the truth about God and ourselves and our neighbors. But it is also used, the image of the sword, as an image of judgment. You know, it's interesting. Pergamum was controlled by a Roman proconsul. One of the... Um, I say responsibilities, but one of the privileges, I guess, if you were a proconsul, <clears throat> that you, as the proconsul, had absolute control over the use of the sword to execute. In other words, Pontius Pilate could execute Jesus. The proconsul in Pergamum could execute anybody he wanted to with no backlash, no appeal to a higher court. Jesus is, in essence, using an image that the Pergamon Christians can understand. Do you want to deal with me? Because the proconsul is one thing, but I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe. Jesus says, my sword of truth and judgment will be used against the accommodationists. It'll be used against those who are immoral. My sword will penetrate, my words will judge. Jesus said, it is not I who will judge you at the end of the world. My words will judge you. How did you respond to them? 
I can't help but think about the mainline denominations in the United States and around the world who for the last 50 years have embraced accommodationism. They've accommodated the world's sexual ethos. They've accommodated the world's political ethos. They've accommodated the world's understanding of scripture. They've accommodated, they've accommodated, they've accommodated. And always in the name of tolerance, of diversity, of inclusion. In the old Presbyterian Church USA, which we've come out of into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, that's what we heard for 25 years as a pastor, over and over at every Presbyterian meeting. Inclusion, diversity, tolerance, and any resistance to immorality or to idolatry from any of us was greeted with chance, bigotry, bigotry. We were accused of not loving when in fact they were mere sentimentalists because they had divorced love from the truth. And what has happened? Well, the PCUSA is dying. The Episcopal Church USA is dying. The Lutheran Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, it's dying. They're all dying. I can't help but think that Jesus said, listen to the Spirit, repent, and they've said absolutely not. And Jesus has come with the sword of truth and the sword of judgment. May God have mercy. May we never fall prey to that. Now I want to end with this because otherwise it's a little depressing, isn't it? Jesus ends with two amazing promises. Did you notice how that, how he does? He ends all his letters with promise. Why? Because Jesus cares about us. Remember, he knows where we live. He gets that our circumstances are tough. He delights in us. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants to be engaged with us. He wants us to be intimate with him. He wants us to grow in our relationship with him. And he says, the promise for those who are victorious. In other words, you understand that we're in a war and that it must be waged with the word of God and with faithfulness and holiness are twofold. One, the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? Well, manna, of course, was the food God provided to the Israelites every day when they were wandering in the desert after uh, being freed from slavery in Egypt. Well, the hidden manna is Jesus himself. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you don't believe. And all those the Father gives me will come to me though. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The hidden man is Jesus himself. What Jesus is saying is, the real gift is me. Intimacy with me. Knowledge of me and me knowing you. To be loved by Jesus and to love Jesus. To be known by Jesus and to know Jesus. So that our guilt and our shame and our fear are dealt with by Jesus. And we are free then to worship God and enjoy his benefits and love his people and tell the world about him. The hidden manna. Secondly, he says you'll be given a white stone and it'll have a secret name that only you know. It's amazing. Most scholars think this stone is probably um, the entrance ticket, so to speak, to the messianic banquet because white stones were used as tickets in the early Roman world. What Jesus is saying is, you gotta have your own ticket. My wife's stone won't get me into the banquet. 
you got to have your ticket and your ticket is something I give you. It's a grace ticket. It's a gift. And I give you your own ticket so that you can come and feast with me in the coming kingdom of God to celebrate with me the marriage supper of the Lamb where the church in struggle becomes the church triumphant. It's an amazing offer. Jesus says, I'll give you myself and then I'll give you a name that only you and I know. It's an offer of intimacy. It's an offer of availability. It's an offer of relationship. So I close today with this. Do you already know Jesus Christ? Relationally know him. I encourage you Listen to what the Spirit says. Repent if necessary. Don't let immorality or indifference cripple your intimacy with Jesus. But if you don't yet know Jesus, if you're not yet sure, if you know the one who loves you, who desires that you know and love him, I invite you today to simply say, Jesus, as much as I understand about you, and as much as I understand about myself, I give myself to you because you are ultimately the one to whom all must be accountable. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for wanting me to know the truth about who God is and who I am. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us for immorality but please forgive us for indifference. Help us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to listen to the Spirit through your word and to always repent, to always turn, to always want our mind renewed by the way you think. We invite you to do this. Please become for us our bread, our life. And we look forward one day, Jesus, because of your grace, to eating and drinking with you in the coming kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.